Scriptures, please turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. We're looking this morning at verses 16 to 19. This is the last sermon uh, in our series on the book of Habakkuk. I hope it's been uh, encouraging to you, uh, this series, this time in the book. Um, Habakkuk, for me, is really a favorite. Uh, I return to it. Could you try again? No. Sorry. Uh, apparently, Tim Cook was listening. Um, I, I return to Habakkuk a lot just because I find it so honest and so inviting us to bring our lives and our experiences and to connect them to the gospel. I think we'll see that same thing here at the end of Habakkuk. Uh, So our passage this morning is Habakkuk 3, verses 16 to 19. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Habakkuk says this, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And we pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would open your word to us, that as we read it, it would read us and shape us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Back in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord tells Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. And I think that this passage here at the very end of the book actually gives us a picture of what that looks like in a world that is broken by sin. And we see two things in this passage that characterize a life lived by faith. And those two things are realism and joy. Realism and joy. We're going to look at each of those in turn. We see realism here in verses 16 and 17. In fact, in both of these, we see realism about our hearts 
and realism about our emotions. Look at how Habakkuk describes his experience, what he is feeling in light of all that God has told him. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Friends, Habakkuk here is honest and realistic about what he feels and what he is experiencing. His body trembles, his lip quivers, his bones feel rotten, his legs tremble. This is his response to everything that God has told him here in this book that Israel will be judged and invaded and destroyed by Babylon and then Babylon itself will be judged and destroyed and Habakkuk's response to all of this is dread and sorrow and even anxiety. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had that experience in your own life? Maybe you've received a difficult medical diagnosis and this is the feelings that you experienced as you heard that news. Maybe you've experienced brokenness in your relationships or in your marriage or in your friendships and you are quivering and trembling and anxious about what the future might hold for that relationship. Maybe you felt that way as you've had a job transition or you've lost a position that you enjoyed. Maybe you felt that way at the death of someone you love. Rottenness enters into your bones. I remember feeling this way acutely uh, and briefly eight years ago. I had uh, a tonsillectomy. Uh, and I was uh, in the pre-op, I had the IVs in, and they were about to take me back, and the nurse anesthetist came in, was about to put me under, and he looked at my chart, and he goes, whoa, adult tonsillectomy, these never go well. <laughs> there was rottenness entering into my bones, and then I went to sleep and woke up, and he was right, uh, so... We experience this. We feel this. Habakkuk is honest about his experience of that. And he's honest about his heart. He's honest about his emotions. He's honest about his experiences before God. And in verse 17, Habakkuk is also honest about his circumstances. Even the simplest signs of God's favor are gone, are absent. And Habakkuk is honest about that. He says there's no fig, there's no fruit, there's no olives. The fields are barren, the flocks are cut off, there's no herd in the stall. And Habakkuk is honest and realistic about this world that he is experiencing and the world that God says he will experience. He is honest about what he sees in the world. Uh, early on in my ministry, I was in a difficult season. Uh, the church I was in had experienced a, a lot of conflict. I was a brand new pastor, and I was kind of like, is this what I've signed up for? And I was struggling with depression and anxiety. And one of the elders uh, took me to breakfast one morning, and he looked at me, and he said, Todd, 
you're not crazy. This is really, really hard. It was a profound kindness, and the kindness was simply recognizing the truth of the world that I was experiencing. We have to learn as God's people to acknowledge the difficulty that others are experiencing. We are so uncomfortable sometimes with the pain that others experience that we tend to minimize or downplay or spiritualize the circumstances that they are going through. And friends, what I'm encouraging you this morning to do is to recognize and to acknowledge and to own the difficulty of the world that we live in. You see, I think part of the life of faith that we see here modeled at the end of the book of Habakkuk is that the life of faith is a life of honest assessment of ourselves and of the world. This emotional response of Habakkuk is not unfaithful. This is not sinful. This is not opposite to how God wants us to respond to difficulty in our lives and in the world. What the gospel is doing in part is it is freeing us to live emotionally honest lives. In fact, I would go even further than that. I would say that God never invites us or commands us, or expects us to pretend that things are great. He never even encourages that. But friends, for some reason, we are constantly tempted to do that. We are constantly tempted to pretend that things are not as bad as they are. Here's a few ways I think that we sometimes pretend about our own hearts and pretend about the world we experience. Sometimes when we are hurting, we pretend that we're fine. We pretend that we are not experiencing or racked by shame and guilt. Sometimes if we have experienced extreme difficulty, maybe in the past or in our childhood or when we were growing up, sometimes we pretend that the trauma didn't happen. And that's the thing we don't talk about. And because we don't talk about it, we are often just unconsciously controlled by the ongoing effects of this sin against us. Sometimes we pretend that we are something we're not. Maybe we pretend that we're not actually sinners. And so we go through our lives expecting people to sort of prop up that fiction in our lives that anything bad that we do is actually not our fault. There's a reason for it. In fact, it's probably your fault. Sometimes we pretend we're not sinners. Sometimes we pretend that actions don't have consequences. And when the consequences of our actions come around, we grow frustrated or despondent. Sometimes we want to pretend that maybe a life of being angry with your family isn't going to reap any consequences, and then you wonder why your children grow up and want nothing to do with you. 
actions have consequences, even if we want to pretend that they don't. Sometimes I think we are tempted to pretend that the world is either better or worse than it actually is. And that looks like naivete about the world. Because the world is actually broken by sin. We're not required to pretend that it's not. But nor are we permitted as God's people to live lives of cynicism because God is still sovereign and God is still at work. There is a tension we are required to live in as God's people. We are not permitted to pretend that the world is only good or only bad. Friends, at the heart of this entire point is simply the idea that part of being in God's people, part of being a member of the people of God is living in reality. We are called as God's people to live in reality because ultimately you can't actually avoid reality. And if you try to avoid reality, all you're going to do is make your own life worse and you're going to make the lives of those who love you worse. Because reality always wins. Reality always wins. The issue with pretending is that reality always wins. You can wish that reality wasn't actually there. You can wish that the difficulty and the hardship wasn't actually there. But if you're pretending that it's not there, you're really just passing on the costs of dealing with the difficulty to those around you. One Christian scholar put it this way. He says, nobody escapes pain and loss. Nobody escapes pain and loss. The only question is whether they are the kinds that lead to flourishing or to destruction. And the way that pain and loss lead to flourishing is we face them head on in the light of the gospel. Pain and loss lead to destruction when we pretend they're not real or when we seek to avoid them over and over again. But what the life of faith that we see here in Habakkuk is inviting us to do is to look at the world and to look at our hearts full on and pray both of them to God. We pray the difficulties of the world. We pray the experiences of our heart to our God. We are called to realism without cynicism. But friends, we're not just called to realism. In fact, I think we see in the second half of this passage, we see in verses 18 and 19, we are also called to joy. We're called to joy. Despite how he's feeling, despite the reality of the circumstances Habakkuk will face, Habakkuk expresses joy. And I think there's a natural question that arises from that because I've just told you that God never invites us to pretend. And the question is, how can this not be pretending? How can we have joy in the midst of the difficulty? How can we have joy in the midst of all of the brokenness that Habakkuk is and will experience? Friends, we think that having joy and hardship is pretending because we misunderstand what joy really is. 
Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Joy is not just the feeling of an elevated mood and pleasure. The grounds of joy are not how we feel. The grounds of joy are not based in pleasant circumstances. We see the grounds of joy right there in verse 18. Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord. He says he will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, friends, joy is more true than our circumstances because joy is based on something more true than our circumstances. Joy is based on the unchanging character and power and love of God. And joy is what we experience because we have an insatiable longing for what is true and what is good and it is beautiful. Joy is the reason that you get a catch in your throat when you see something beautiful. That is what joy really is because you are getting a glimpse of the world as it was meant to be. It's why we gasp at sunsets. It's why we climb to the top of a mountain and marvel and stand there on the verge of tears. Because joy is a glimpse of the world as it is meant to be, the world that God created and is now redeemed in Christ. And so, friends, God is not asking us to pretend that everything is fine. God is not asking us to pretend that we are happy all of the time. God is asking us and calling us to find joy in the fact that we belong to him. We are part of his story. And he is good. And he has redeemed us and he is keeping us and he has promised to bless us for all of eternity. We have joy because there is a story that is more true than our circumstances. And we feel it when we get a glimpse of the true story. Verse 19 says that joy like this gives us confidence. It gives us sure footing in our lives like deer in the mountains. Maybe the clearest example of joy that I've ever seen in my life uh, came at the greatest sermon I ever saw preached. It was preached by a pastor that I'm sure you've never heard of. His entire ministry, he pastored a small church uh, in Asheville, North Carolina. His name was Doug Tilly. Uh, Doug was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease uh, in his early 50s. And he had to uh, medically retire from the pastorate because he just couldn't fulfill the obligations of pastoral ministry. Uh, over time, he had weakness in his hands and it moved up uh, into his arms and his shoulders, uh, so he lost the use of his arms. Uh, he lost the ability to hold his uh, neck up, uh, so he had to wear a brace to keep his head up. Uh, after Doug retired from his ministry, he came and worshipped at the church where I was pastoring in Asheville. Uh, and we asked Doug if he would be interested or willing to preach one Sunday. And he said he would. And he asked if he could preach 
on Romans 8. How God works all things for the good of those who love him. And Doug got up that Sunday and he stood in the pulpit of this church, his arms hanging at his side, his head in a brace to keep it upright. And Doug proclaimed the love of God in Christ. Doug glowed as he talked about how God was using all things for his good, even as he was suffering this terminal, chronic, persistent illness that would eventually take his life. And friends, I have heard sermons that are technically more proficient. I have seen pastors who were more dynamic in the pulpit, but I have never seen a better sermon than Doug Tilley's sermon that Sunday. Because Doug Tilley preached with his life a sermon that was more beautiful than anything I've ever heard since. His footing was sure. His feet were treading on the high places because he was rejoicing in the God of his salvation. It was beautiful. It was profound. And friends, as good as Doug is, as good as Habakkuk is, as good as these models of this joy are, the place we really learn to see what realism and joy look like in the Christian life is Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the one who ultimately shows us and demonstrates for us what it means to be both realistic and joyful about life in this world. No one is more realistic than Jesus. Think of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. In those moments, he was praying and seeing the brokenness of the world with perfect clarity. And he poured out his grief and his fear and his trembling and his tears and his pain to God. He was realistic about what he was going to do on the cross. And yet no one displays for us the joy that is more true than our circumstances than Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 2, the author of the Hebrews says about Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And the joy that was set before Jesus was his longing to please God the Father and to redeem his bride. Jesus went to the cross with joy because there was a story more true than the suffering he was going to endure. And friends, Jesus is not just demonstrating for us realism and joy, but by the Holy Spirit, he is shaping those things in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus is making us people who see the world truly, who live emotionally honest Lives who have joy because there is a story more true than our circumstances. The story of God's love for us in Christ. And friends, that story ends with eternal life. With every longing that we have satisfied. And it is a future too glorious to even imagine. It's good news. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you that though we live in a world broken by sin, you invite us to be realistic about our experiences. You invite us to be honest about how we feel and what our emotions are doing as we live in this world. And Father, we thank you that you also invite us into joy because there is something more true than our circumstances. Your love for us in Christ. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would shape realism and joy in our hearts and in our lives. Make us people who live in light of your love for us. Father, take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in your grace and your goodness, to make us a people for your own possession. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.